topic, we'll look at our topic of understanding generations. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to kind of bring this to a, a summary of this part of the lesson of the series. And then what I'd like to do over the next couple of Sundays, Lord willing, is look at a couple of, of issues. I'm not an expert on them, but particularly I want to look at critical theory. It's a big topic. I'm not an expert. I'm going to have to borrow from people with much more brains than me, but I've done a fair amount of reading and uh, research on the topic, and I want us to be able to look and approach that subject from a biblical perspective. So Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at that and then uh, maybe uh, another topic or two uh, as, the, as we have time, as the Lord would allow. But today, we'll be in Acts 17, and then we'll be back maybe in Acts 2 a little bit, and uh, we'll uh, use these passages a little bit today as uh, we have been studying the, the generations and how we can disciple and reach the up-and-coming generations. Acts 17, we know verses 10 through 15 very well. Uh, Acts 17 and verse 11 is uh, a familiar verse because that is the verse that even we have patterned the name of our church after, Berean Baptist Church. And the Bereans were uh, more noble, it says, than, the Thessalon than, the, than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And we drop down to verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. And so we know Athens, a prominent uh, capital city in Greece. And then we drop down to verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And then verse 19, they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, uh, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Do we not sometimes feel like we're in an Athenian world where the entire culture is given to idolatry? That there is a paganism? that we are up against. We feel like a lot of times we are in an Athenian culture and a Greek culture that is pagan, that is wholly given to idolatry. And we are more and more having to reach a culture, reach people who are biblically illiterate. It was sad. There was a, a, a young lady that, just a, a, young, a young girl that uh, Kelly was talking to just the other day 
and uh, she may have shared this with some of you, but uh, the, the, young, the young lady didn't know anything about the Bible. I'm guessing she's seven, eight years old. Didn't even know what the Bible is. When, when Kelly was describing the, the Sunday school class and what we do here at church, uh, she made, she, the, the little girl made a comment about, oh, that sounds like a survival class. She had no clue. She had no context, no framework as a seven or, or eight year old girl to even understand what the Bible is, what we do at church, what we learn here, what this is all about. Isn't that sad that a six, seven, eight year old girl has no clue even what the Bible is? Un unfortunately, that is more and more of what we are dealing with in our culture today. People who have no idea who Adam and Eve are, people who don't understand the Noahic flood, the ark, they, they may know a little bit about David and Goliath, they may know some of the other more famous Bible stories, but there's a general ignorance in our culture. There's a, a distrust for organized religion, and there's a general illiteracy when it comes to the Bible. And when we look at our culture that has pushed God, the one true and living God, to the fringes of society, it's interesting that statistics still show that I think it's in the 80%, 80 to 90%, I forget the exact number I heard recently, but it's something like 86, maybe 87% of people would consider themselves religious or at least spiritual. Isn't that interesting? There's a distrust, there's a biblical illiteracy, there's a pushing of God to the fringes of society, and yet people will call themselves spiritual or religious. But you know what has happened is people have become worshipers of themselves rather than worshipers of God. They've internalized their religion. Religion is a private issue. That's what we're hearing more and more. Politicians, they will excuse rampant ungodly, blasphemous policies, murderous policies, wicked, ungodly policies, and then excuse it all by saying, well, personally, I'm opposed to that, but this is how I vote, this is the issues I support, this is what I do as a politician. Because, you know, that's what I have to do. They, they make excuses like that. And we are living more and more in an Acts 17, an Athenian kind of world. So as we have spent some time looking at these generations, we have gone through and looked at everything from the traditionalists to the baby boomers, to the Gen Xers, to the millennials. And unfortunately, we have seen, as we go through, we have seen less and less knowledge of the Bible, less and less fear of God, and more and more of the idolatry and the modernism and the paganism and the secularism creep into our culture. And then a lot of that, is even directly related to the sexual revolution. And again, it's not that every person in these subsequent generations, it's not that there weren't ever any bad people among the traditionalists. Of course, there were traditionalists who rejected God and the Bible and, and, and lived for themselves and went into sin, of course. And that's the theme that we've talked about that is common to every generation. We're all, we're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we have seen a reduction in a fear of God, in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of God's word, a reduction in the church being the center of family life and social life. We've seen a reduction in that to the point now that 
it's not uncommon for people to literally only be Christmas and Easter Christians. It's not uncommon now. There's a lot of people who will claim to just, they'll claim to be a follower of Christ, they'll claim Christianity, but they, if they go to church at all, it might be just Christmas and Easter, maybe. That's, that's where a lot of people are at. So we've talked about these different generations, and we've uh, reached the Gen Zers. Um, again, there are some who will vary a little bit in the years of these generations. We're now probably in what is sometimes being referred to as Gen Alpha, uh, or the selfie generation, or whatever the, the, the name is going to be. And I know there's a little variation in the, in the years, but you can see how different cultural influences, different circumstances, different events do come into play in these different generations. So then we made some observations. I know I'm going back and reviewing because it's been a couple of weeks, but we made some uh, remarks and observations about uh, the, the generations. We see overlap. And there's obviously a humanity that is shared by all generations. There's sin that has been shared by all generations. And then there's the cultural sins. What the culture considers acceptable and sadly, even those who claim to be religious, claim to know God, claim to be Christians, will pick up and excuse cultural sins, sadly. The, the discernment, as the word of God is pushed away, as the illiteracy of the Bible continues to be more and more prevalent in society, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no revelation, where there is no proclamation of the word of God, where there is no understanding of the word of God, the people perish. Man's left to his own devices, doing his own thing, trying to figure out life on his own, and it causes a perishing. It causes a death in the culture and all of the vices that come with that. And uh, without getting on too much of a rabbit trail, we see death. We see a dying in our culture. There, there is everything from what is referred to as the pornification of culture, where things that were considered to be part of streets life, certain dress patterns, certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of talk that was known among the red light district, if I can call it that, is now mainstream in our culture. When family friendly drag queen hours are pushed and promoted, even by city councils, Something is gravely wrong with our society, okay? Where there is a paganism and a pornification of culture, clothes come off. Where there is nakedness that is prevalent in a society, it is a sign of paganism in society. And it's sad, there was a, an article I read years ago and I'm using that term, pornification of culture, because he talked about the number of things that were considered normal among the adult industry in the red light district, among the people of the streets. And he started showing in this article how, so, how many of those features 
are now mainstream in our culture and in our entertainment and in our music and now in the videos and the internet. It's scary. And we have been like the frogs in the boiling water. And there's a death to our culture. But we have life in Christ. We have life in the Word of God. So each of these generations deals with cultural sins, national and worldwide circumstances, cultural ideas and influences, influencers. Now we have the academics, the academians, the intellectuals, who are now setting rules and policies and cultural standards to the point now that we have a law professor from Berkeley arguing with a representative or a senator, a senator from Congress this week. I don't know if you saw the exchange. It went viral. And the senator and this law professor from Berkeley are literally debating literal biological realities concerning male and female. And she is denying them and calling him a transphobic and accusing him of violence. Because he asked the question, he asked the question, she reversed it back on him, can a man become pregnant? And she is saying yes, and he is saying no, and she's calling him transphobic and accusing him of violence because he dared to even ask the question. Unbelievable that we are now debating that in our society. That's, that's where we're at, sad to say. And there's ideas, influences, influencers that are contributing to this. The tendency of generations then to blame each other and do the different generations have their faults, of course. And sometimes what happens is the younger generation say, well, you caused all of my problems. Well, there were maybe some bad examples. There were maybe some bad influences. And there's obviously been what we can sometimes refer to as generational sins. There is a way in which sin that is exemplified by one generation or excused in one generation is then lived out in excess in the next generation. Okay, but each person individually is responsible for his or her choices before God and whether to accept or reject Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that there aren't influences, there aren't bad examples, there aren't effects by older generations upon the younger generations. And obviously there has been some of those detrimental effects. The broken homes, the broken families, the decline of morals in society uh, it's, 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 it's taught, in a sense, to the next generation. Again, without getting too carried away, when a, when a parent excuses rebellious behavior in a child, and they themselves are hypocritical in the home, it does have a detrimental effect on the children, on the subsequent generations. Of course it does. So there are those kinds of negative influences. And then what happens is the generations begin to blame each other. And then there is what's, what's considered the generation gap. You just don't understand me. And then the older generation is saying, you're just this and that and no good. You know? And then we end up in this divide. And unfortunately, what does that do to the church? What does that do for us as believers? What does that do for our evangelism? What does that do for our discipleship? What does that do for our, our influence for Christ? 
That's why we looked at several passages, such as Psalm 78, where there's the responsibility of the older generation to teach the subsequent generations the things of the Lord. So again, we see the need to give the gospel and teach God's truth to each generation. We have that responsibility to make disciples, to teach all nations. And that starts right at home, in our home, and in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it's got to start at home. So we looked at, a couple weeks ago, common approaches. There's all these different approaches. And then what is considered, or what I'm considering, the hardest, but it's the best approach. The one that takes the most work. So there's condemnation, there's regulation, accommodation, agreement, imitation. And uh, we talked about that couple, three weeks ago, won't go back and review all those, but that's often where we see the generations going back and forth, and there's even the acceptance of sin, and the allowance, and the excusing of sin, and it's difficult when it gets into the family, it is hard when it gets into the family, and we have had multiple questions through the years, what do I do in this situation? My child, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad are involved in this sin. We're coming together for a family gathering. We are going over to their house. We are involved in this particular uh, gift-giving occasion or whatever it might be. What do I do? How do I not condone or excuse their sin while at the same time loving them biblically and in a Christ-like way? I think if I asked for a raise of hands, we'd all say, yeah, I've been there. It's tough. How do I minister? Because now we live in a culture, if you disagree with me in any way, shape, or form, you hate me. That's where we're at now in our culture. We so much as say one word of disagreement with anything that somebody considers as their self-identification, then you are personally attacking them and guilty of violence now. That's where that line of questioning went in that exchange this week. To disagree with an LGBTQ person and their lifestyle, to even so much as disagree with them, is now being considered violence. You are causing them to self-murder, suicide. You are committing violence. That's, that's where we're at. And we know where that's going. That's going to ultimately lead to the shutting down of free speech, of the ability for conservatives, Christians, to even speak what the Bible says and call sin what it is. That's where it ultimately is going. We know that. And we're, we're, we're trusting the Lord, and we're fighting against that, and we're continuing to proclaim the truth and take a stand for what is right. But we see where it's going. So we're thankful for at least one senator who, who stood up to it, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult battle. So that takes us to, again, what we looked at a few weeks ago, and this is where a lot of the younger people are at. Not everybody, but this is, these are a lot of the issues that are going on among young people. Now, feel free to give me feedback and, and to to uh, interject your, your, um, your thoughts and ideas here. But there's a complexity, there's a self-confidence, yet a desire to change the world. There's an obvious 
it's clear that there's something wrong. There's a brokenness. And what are the solutions that are often suggested? Gun control? Uh, abortion is considered a way to fix the problems of our society. Um, safer sex is considered a, a, a cure, a, pro, a, a way to solve. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've heard. Um, give me some feedback if there's something I'm, I'm not thinking of right at the moment. But there's all these different things that you hear that are considered the solution. Oh, environmental, uh, climate change, environmental regulation. Because um, we're committing climate sins. I mean, I committed a climate sin by driving my car to church today. And so therefore, I've upset the, the god or the goddess. Probably some unicorn somewhere out there. I, I, I offended, right? And, uh, you know, now I'm, now I'm going to have to reduce my carbon footprint. Anyway, you know, there's all these solutions, right, that the world, that man has come up with for all these problems. So there's a desire to change the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good desire, but there's solutions that are given to us in the Word of God. And many times, most of the time, especially among the elites and the ruling class, and many times among the politicians, and sadly, often among the religious, those who would claim to be spiritual leaders now were even seeing compromise in solutions that are not biblical. So ultimately, they're not really solutions. And then we see the negative view of the church, uh, the pragmatic kind of philosophy, the moral relativism, and the idea of my truth, multitasking. And again, that comes with technology, the fear of missing out, the social media, and how that contributes. And then having so many things going on and doing so many things because of the technology and all the entertainment options and you can have 150 streaming channels now and 250 cable or satellite channels. You have 500 options of entertainment at your fingertips 24-7. What do we do with all that entertainment? <laughs> now there's, what, a billion TikTok users? I think this is what I heard. One billion TikTok accounts. And I even heard a, on, on a, a technology show podcast that I listen to fairly often, she talked about how people will spend hours of their day streaming TikTok videos of watching one person after another dance and twerk and whatever else they do over and over and over. How is that contributing to the betterment of society? How is that contributing to the flourishing of society? And then you have the things that come with TikTok that are downright perverse. And then you have, um, we, we watch, uh, once in a while, we'll watch a, uh, uh, a YouTuber, uh, Dr. Mike, I think is his name. And he is hilarious because he makes fun of the TikTok videos that just give out lots of just horrible medical information. It's actually quite funny to watch because Dr. Is that his name, Dr. Mike? And he'll sit there and he'll show a video, he'll show a TikTok video, and he'll be making fun of all the bad information that they're giving that supposedly because they're on TikTok, they're an authority, right? If you can make a TikTok account, if you can have a YouTube account, that makes you an authority, right? If you have a blog, if you have a, the ability to make a video, that instantly makes you an authority. Anyway, Dr. Mike's hilarious because he'll sit there and he'll make fun of the, the supposed medical advice that actually sometimes is quite dangerous. 
So then we see what, what ends up happening is, oh, but I, I went too far. Sorry about that. I'll have to come back. Ah, I deleted a slide. Where'd it go? There we go. Okay. I thought I deleted a slide. Okay. So stress. What happens with all this technology and all these videos and all this information 24-7, all of the headlines, negative most of the time, what happens? Stress, loneliness. We have a society that is extremely wealthy and yet is discontent, lonely, and impoverished in their souls, wanting answers, wanting meaning to life. Again, very connected, but often mean, needing meaningful relationships. Um, often feel uninhibited, again, with money, with wealth, with the ability to travel, with technology at our fingertips. I mean, think about the places that you can go now that we couldn't go or were very hard to, at least, even 35, 40 years ago. Now we have billionaires flying people to space. And it was interesting, I was just listening to a, a, a lady tell a story of like a $100,000 flight to the stratosphere. It's a bargain, $100,000 or $100,000 to $200,000 flight to the stratosphere. You get, I forget how many hours. And it was a bargain, because it's not like going up in SpaceX or whatever those, whatever, the, I forget Bezos and Elon Musk and all their, you know, you can go up and you can spend all that time and there's another one that's like only a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars and it's a, it's the bargain. It's the, um, it's the frontier airlines of space, you know, of space uh, transport. Uh, interesting. Like, boy, that's, that's a bargain. All right. A hundred thousand dollar flight into the stratosphere for six hours. But anyway, more money than I can even imagine. But then there's that again, there's that, there's nothing we can't do, no place we can't go. And uh, what's, the, what's the, the, the telescope that just came out, the James Webb or whatever telescope that's even going beyond the Hubble telescope? And it's showing pictures of galaxies that have been there for God's glory since creation. And they've been glorifying God for all these years since creation. And man's just now discovering them. And somebody was foolish enough to say, look at what we did. Wait a minute. Okay. You have a telescope by your ingenuity. Yes. By man's ingenuity, you're able to fly the telescope up there in space and it somehow makes it where I can take a picture. But we didn't do that. God did. And God gave us the brains to even be able to make that technology to fly there to see that. But we didn't make all those galaxies and those stars. But that, that's, the, that's the idea. And then you have all the songs and all the movies. Nothing you can't do. No place you can't go. Be anything you want to be. And it's all, almost, almost always, it's absent God. It's leaving God out. And there's nothing about God's will. And we talked about the loneliness. Okay? So then we get to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, common threads, sin, the increase in technology, and understanding how to balance technology. It's a constant challenge. Constant. Okay? It's just one of those things where we have to be vigilant, and it's hard. So before I move on to the next part, any questions so far? Questions or, or feedback? No? Okay. So let's look at this a little bit uh, in our time that we have left. 
Let's think about the Christian life as a pilgrimage. In reaching the next generation, in discipleship, in reaching those who are coming up, using the analogy of a pilgrimage, our role in leading and being examples to the younger generations is really more like being a guide on a hike or a climb. Sometimes we sometimes see the idea of a, of a, of a king or a queen, royalty up on a pedestal, looking down at all of the people down below that are below them, that are inferior, and saying, you do this and you do that, and bad you and good you, and here's your trophy and here's your reward and here's your punishment, right? Sometimes that's our mentality when really the scriptures speak to our discipleship philosophy being what, like Paul said, come and follow me as I follow Christ. It's a come alongside me. Doesn't mean that there aren't gifted leaders, there aren't roles of leadership, but we, we, maybe we, and I like this analogy, I'm borrowing it from a book that I was reading that, that really kind of helped me get my mind around this. We're really on the same pilgrimage, the same trail, so to speak. So what do we do? If you've ever been on a long hike, you've been up on, up on a mountain, or you've been through the woods, and you've got a group with you, there's usually a leader, usually a guide, usually someone out in front, but what does that person do? Does that person look back and say, all you slow people, all you weak people, all you people who don't know where you're going, is that the attitude of the guide? What's the attitude of the guide? Making sure nobody wanders off. And I don't know about you, but I've led some, some trails, some hikes through the woods with junior hires. Sometimes it can be like herding cats, okay? Oh, look over there in the tree. Okay, city kids, okay, we'll go on a little, a little retreat. And the city kids go out in the woods and they see an animal and they want to go run after it and follow it, right? Because they don't see many of those kinds of animals, okay? And it's like, no, stay on the trail, follow. You don't want anybody to get lost. What's the guy doing? Keeping the people together, making sure that no one gets lost, no one gets too far behind. And then sometimes what does the guide have to do? has to come back among the pack, among the group, and help maybe carry something, or to kind of lead from the side. And really, I think that's kind of the idea that we need to have more and more of as we're trying to reach the younger generation. They're looking for authentic relationships. They're on that trail, and they're looking at the trees, they're looking at all, sometimes there's a storm, there's rain, there's all these little, these little trails, you ever been on a big trail and there's off to the side, there's that little path and somebody wants to go off on that little path. I remember, I remember being at Turkey Run years ago, a bunch of us kids going through Turkey Run, trail three. And I was that dumb kid who thought I could run up the side of the ravine and I could go up there and I could explore. And I climbed up there and I got to the top and looked down and the kids and my teachers and the guides and whoever was with us, they were down there and I looked down and I thought I was the, the big stuff, you know, because I made it up there. And then I looked down and I realized how stupid I was because I was going to have to go back down. And I was scared to death because I didn't know how I was going to get back down there. And I was slipping and sliding and trying to get down. And, and, you know, my teachers are like, what are you doing up there? <laughs> you know, and we have to, as, as adults, as, as an older generation, we're, we're really trying to come alongside. We're guiding, we're discipling, we're... we're pointing to the truth 
that's going to keep them on the straight and narrow. That's going to help them through the storms when the storms come, keeping eyes ahead. Or when the, the trials of life come, when the sins and the temptations come. Keeping, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be smooth, right? Okay, so thinking may, maybe as the Christian life being uh, a pilgrimage, uh, being a guide on a hike or a climb, it's not that we have arrived. Sometimes we're out front, often alongside, sometimes helping carry the load. Galatians 6 is where I think of often uh, when, when it comes to some of this, because it kind of summarizes the way we have to work with the younger generation and even among our own peers. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. The point is restoration. Getting back on the trail, staying in the straight and narrow, in the middle of the road. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, with humility, understanding, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I may have been guilty of the same sin, but I have gotten right with God, and God's taught me a lesson. I don't want you to do the same thing. Or here's the pitfall. Here's what's going to happen. You go off the trail. You go over to that side, and there's a cliff trying to keep you. You don't want to experience that cliff. You may not survive. You may not come back off that cliff. Um, we continue, bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. So the guide isn't out there as a, a person full of pride. Look at me, I'm the big, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's a position of humility, of help. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not another. We're individually responsible for our relationship with God. At the same time, there are influences, and we influence others. Every man shall bear his own burden. There are certain things that we all have to carry. Verse 6, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. In other words, we have to communicate with the word of God. and Continue to instruct the next generation, those who look to us for leadership, for guidance. We have to instruct them in the word and we have to follow the Galatians 6 principles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. It does. Right. Right. It is. It is. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that guide has to have discernment on the trail to make sure that the, 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 the people that are following him doesn't stumble and fall, get off the trail. So there's discernment all the time. Yeah. Right, right, right. And they, they've talked about that. I think one of the number one causes of injury in Yellowstone is the bison. Because people are stupid enough to go out and to, I guess, want to pet the bison. It's a bison. And it, 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 it hurt, you know, it, it maims or injures the people. Yes, Matt? Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Great point. Great point. We need to see it as a responsibility and not as a burden or as a way of accusing and pointing out and yeah, but as a responsibility of leadership. Good. And then just talking about in Matthew six thirty three, seeking first the kingdom of God, the idea of our eyes being on the Lord, preeminence of Christ in Colossians one eighteen, and then Philippians three fourteen, I press toward the mark. So the idea of being focused upon the Lord, upon upon Christ. And then in reaching the younger generations, we have just a little bit of time here, and I don't know how much we'll be able to expand on this, but what are the younger generations often struggling with? We've talked a little bit about this as we were reviewing and in previous weeks. The younger generations often struggle more with the question of sin and evil. Not that the other generations didn't, but it just seems like more and more. How can a good God? Questions that start like that. I personally... I get tired of my God, my Savior, who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me, a sinner, who saved my wretched soul. I get tired of my God, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, being accused of all the bad things in the world. I, again, I don't, want to be, I don't want to sound all mean, but why do they blame my God? My God sent his son Jesus Christ, who saved me from my sin, who promised a heaven for eternity, a fellowship with him, forgiveness of my sin, reconciliation, joint heirs with Christ. That's incredible. That's my God. Why are you blaming him for the sins of man who made that choice to commit those evils and to blaspheme God? Why don't they blame Allah? Why don't they blame the Hare Krishna or Buddha? Why don't they blame the force, the presence, fate? Why do they blame my God? My God provided a solution through his son, Jesus Christ. He's a God of mercy and grace, forgiveness and love. So I get, I get kind of upset sometimes when they want to blame my God. The good that's in the world is because of God. The evil is because of man. And Dr. Bob III in chapel, often he would say, if there's anything good here, it's because of God. If there's anything bad that's going on, it's because of sinful man. It was a good reminder. And, uh, and, and, and so we see that the younger generations will struggle with this question of sin and evil. Sometimes that comes from a lack of biblical foundation. Entitlement. The entertainment and the sensuality that pervades our culture. The wealth and the comforts. The easy credit. Just put it on a credit card. Build up the debt. I can have what I want. Instant gratification. All these are contributions. If you've never been told no, if you've always been bailed out, if you've never had to have negativity in your life growing up, why would you ever think that you're a sinner in need of a savior? Why would anything bad? I'm such a good person. Why should anything bad happen to me? Don't you know I'm this wonderful person? I mean, look at me. I'm all that in a bag of sticks. You know, I got a trophy in Little League. I got a ribbon. On and on we could go, right? We're told how wonderful we are. There's even Christians who say, you're so wonderful. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you. Because you are so wonderful. He just had to come and die for you because you're such a great person. There are spiritual people, religious leaders who preach that kind of nonsense. Okay? 
But if that's all we've been taught, and there's little personal responsibility, and we already naturally do what when we get in trouble? We blame, we spin. I mean, when's the last time a politician admitted to doing anything wrong? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's almost become just the normal part of life, just to shift the blame and point. What did Eve do? The serpent, right? And uh, Adam, the woman that you gave me. And blaming has continued through, through uh, the generations. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, broken homes, uh, a lot of baggage now. Um, there's a lot of sin and its consequences. And we have to be willing to reach those people. I, I do not want us to be offended. doesn't mean that we want to fill our church with unsaved people and coddle sin. That's not my point. Please don't misunderstand me. But there are going to be people that we're going to have to reach who are going to be, they're going to smell like smoke, or they're going to be coming out of drugs, or they're going to have tattoos all over their body. They're going to have piercings in undescribable places and different things, okay? They need the gospel. Not that we coddle, not that we compromise and we fill our church with people who are, are unsaved and ungodly and worldly. It's not that we're going to try to market our church to fill our church with unsaved people and cater to the unsaved and the worldliness. No, that's not the point. But we have got to reach this up-and-coming generation with the gospel. And it means that we're going to have to deal with people who are messed up. More and more people are coming with baggage. They're getting saved at 25, 30, 40 years of age, and they've lived a life of sin. And we've got to be able to take them where they're at to get them to where they need to be in Christ. And uh, there, there's a, an Acts 17 approach, if I can borrow a little bit. I wish I had time to show this. I'm going to have to skip it. I'll have to come back maybe and watch that video some other time. But I like... Um, Ken Ham's book, Gospel Reset, and he describes the Acts 2 versus the Acts 17 approach. And more and more, we have to have an evangelistic approach like Paul at Mars Hill. We've got to take the creation, fall, redemption story, and we often have to start with God made you. This is why he made you. This is how he made you. This is the purpose. And this is how you can be what God wants you to be and be with God one day in glory, forgiven and reconciled, and there's the creation, fall, redemption, and eventually consummation with the eternal kingdom. But there's also people still out there in the Acts 2, religious, understand enough about the Bible, and we can take them right to the Word of God, and they have a, a literacy. But many times now, we're having to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and start with creation and really build from the very beginning to even get them to understand Christ and the gospel and redemption. So I had to rush there at the end. We're, we're almost out of time. But Earl, yes. 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 Good point. The idea of restoration. Paradise regained, in a sense. Paradise lost, paradise regained. And then we'll have one last slide. Things that we have to work on as disciplers. 
that are important for us to ask ourselves. What does my relationship with God look like? Where do I see God at work in my life? What kind of people do I surround myself with? What are some things that I truly value? Where do I find myself struggling? Where do I find myself, what do I find myself longing for? What do I sacrifice my time, money, and conveniences for? And what is my gospel witness? As we look at our own lives and we're working on these, it's amazing the impact that we will have on the next generation and those around us. So we have to constantly be doing self-examination. And we'll do that again next Sunday night. Not that we don't do it every day or shouldn't be doing it every day, but as a church family, we'll do it again next Sunday night when we go to the observance of the Lord's table and we're to examine ourselves as we read in 1 Corinthians 11. So we're constantly going through that examination uh, process, and these are some questions that, that we should ask ourselves as we seek to disciple the next generations. All right, we are out of time. Uh, so we'll go ahead and close in prayer, and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, there is so much here. Lord, help us to be able to digest all that uh, we have been trying to cover, that, Lord, we might be uh, good examples in discipling the next generations and reaching them and reaching out to the lost and uh, helping us, Lord, to reach others with the gospel and see them grow. And, Lord, we have such a responsibility right now and such an opportunity. Pray that you will help us to be effective in it for your glory. And pray you bless now the service to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you so much for being here. We'll uh, start the service in about 15 minutes.